Hi there. Welcome to Mental Health Professionals Network podcast series. MHPN's aim is to promote and celebrate interdisciplinary, collaborative mental health care. We know this land has history, custodians and stories spanning tens of thousands of years that endure to this day. We celebrate and acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of this land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay respects to their elders past and present and we embrace their continued connections to this place. We acknowledge that these lands were never ceded and the effects of colonization on land, waters and cultures is enduring. We embrace the principle of First Nations First, recentering Australian history with Indigenous histories. We accept the invitation from the Uluru Statement of the Heart to walk alongside the First Nations people and pledge our support for voice to parliament, makarata and truth-telling. A very warm welcome to this episode of MHPN Presence Book Club. My name is Radhika Santana-Martin. I'm a clinical psychologist based in Melbourne, Australia, and I'm joined by my colleague Nivenka De Silva, a Melbourne-based psychiatric registrar. Hi, Radhika. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to today's conversation. When MHPN asked me whether I have a book in mind, I didn't bat an eyelid. I knew exactly which book? It was Trauma and Recovery by Judith Lewis Herman. The subtitle of the book is The Aftermath of Violence from Domestic Abuse to Political Terror. This was published in 1992. Our listeners can find the link to the book on the landing page of this episode. I selected this book, Navenka, to discuss today for two reasons. First, This was given to me by my supervisor, Cecile Russo, in 1998, and she told me if there was only one book I could read on trauma at that time, then it should be this one. Secondly, it was one of the first books in psychiatry and psychology that brilliantly argued that psychological trauma experiences can only be understood in a socio-political context. For me, there were so many aha moments in this book, a bit like Alice in Wonderland, you know, I got curiouser and curiouser. It gave me such a new language and a new way of seeing and a new way of knowing, you know. And the reason I've invited you, Navenka, to join me because I'm in my late 50s, I'm a migrant and I'm a woman of colour who has been practising in the field as a trauma therapist for the last 32 years and you are in your late 20s a migrant and a woman of colour who is starting your practice. I also know that you stood for the Greens Party state elections when you were a lot younger. So the sociopolitical context is obviously important for you. So tell me, what did you think when I invited you to join me? First of all, thanks so much for having me, Radhika. I consider you a very cherished mentor, so it's a real honour to share this space with you. Initially, when you asked me, I was really surprised and a bit nervous. I'm still relatively junior in my career and worried about what I can contribute, but I'm so happy I accepted the offer and come to this from a point of wanting to learn and grow. 
I also thought it would be an amazing advocacy opportunity. This book is quite political in the sense that it talks about things that society would rather not talk about, about people and issues which are often pushed into the margins and silenced. By talking about this book, we are also centering marginalized people, and that is very important to me. Isn't it? That's absolutely exactly as you said. It's like if it can bring us a little bit closer to speaking the unspeakable. So some of the things I want to just talk about to you, Navenka, is that for me, while I was reading it, Judith Herman's scholarship was so, so impressive. And what came out for me, like I'm just going to highlight two themes that I want to put out. The book was almost like zooming out and zooming in. By zooming out, I mean it was going, taking you to the socio-political and historical context, and then it'll zoom in to the intra-psychic and the individual context. And I can see why it was hailed as groundbreaking, because it shows the astonishing parallels between private horrors and public torture. So it's a book about saying the commonalities between rape survivors and combat veterans, mm. between battered women and political prisoners, between survivors from the concentration camp and the survivors of prolonged childhood abuse in their own homes. Mm. So for me, that was quite amazing. The second theme was, for the first time in 1998, mm. the book was written in 92, I heard for the first time, Navenka, this proposed staged recovery model for trauma. So Judith Herman talks about this three-stage model. The first is safety and stabilization. The second is remembrance and mourning. And the third stage is reconnection and integration. For me, the clarity and the sophistication of this was mind-blowing because you may or may not know that, given your age, Nevenka, most presentations of trauma in the 90s for women were categorized as personality disorders. Mm -hmm. In general, there was little understanding of complex trauma, let alone the recovery part of it. Mm -hmm. So what ideas stood out for you when you read the book? Radhika, I just want to kind of build on what you say as well. Like when you say that it was like in the 1990s, sometimes I worry that we haven't really moved from that, especially in the public mm. mental health system. Because as a psychiatry registrar, often, you know, we are still very much taught from the DSM-5. There is a big focus on psychopharmacology, and that's really important. But I think definitely my journey through my training has been to really think about trauma and really think about people's life stories and histories and transgenerational histories as well. So, yeah, like I think we still have a long way to go. And in terms of what I thought of the book, um, I actually wanted to read out a quote from the book. Um, because I think Judith Herman has such a poetic and thoughtful way of writing. Doesn't she? Um, and this particular paragraph has really stayed with me. So it goes, When the traumatic events are of human design, those who bear witness are caught in the conflict between victim and perpetrator. It is morally impossible to remain neutral in this conflict. The bystander is forced to take sides. It is very tempting to take the side of the perpetrator. 
all the perpetrator asks is that bystander do nothing. He appeals to the universal desire to see, hear and speak no evil. The victim, on the contrary, asks the bystander to share the burden of pain. The victim demands action, engagement and remembering. And that is so resonant for me. And she goes on to say that for the bystander to stand with the victim, there needs to be a supportive social environment, a political movement that affirms and validates the victim's truth. And without this wider social movement, it is all too easy for the bystander to look the other way. And I think it's so applicable. I think that's what I really love about this book. When I was reading it, all these examples were coming to my mind of what we see day to day, like the Black Lives Matter movement, women's liberation movement. Hashtag Me Too movement. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Sudnavanka, did you think, I mean, just hearing you read that passage there, Mm. do you think by by bystanders, Judith Herman is also implicating professionals like us? therapists like us yeah yeah yeah, I think so because it's about like when we are listening what we almost choose to hear Mm. and sometimes I think when we hear sometimes we can hear in order to diagnose and to pathologize versus hearing to really understand where the person in front of us is coming from and the things that they've been through mm. and the socio-political context in which all these things happened. Mm. For me, this is so significant because this is the book deep in my practice exactly where you've, you've touched upon, which is I realized that testimonial therapy, which mm. is what Judith Herman talks about in the mm. book as a path to recovery, mm. But I realized as a therapist that attentive listening to a testimony is indeed a profound act of witnessing for me. That is a deep, deep practice of solidarity that I had never understood before. Like, you know, so for someone who has been silenced or the perpetrator who never wants this to be seen or heard or or felt, to do an act of witnessing even in the confines of a therapy room became so crucial for me. Like it became like the core of my ethics. The other way also the book deepened my practice is something around this notion. I mean, you know, now it's so common to hear this word coercive control. But in 1992, she wrote about coercive control exactly in the same way. And Judith explains it in great detail with such thoroughness on coercive control, isolation and helplessness and how soul-destroying it is. And here we are in the last five years, this term has taken taken off, in fact, because of, of course, Jess Hill's book, um, See What You Made Me Do, and also her podcast, The Trap, that she did with the Victorian Women's Trust. And it's clear for me that prolonged isolation and helplessness with relentless practices of coercive control are corrosive, doesn't matter whether it's for Julian Assange or whether it's for Baruj Bashani or for the, you know, hundreds of women that we see in our rooms. So I understand that coercive control and isolation are co-experiences of psychological trauma. And on the other hand, the experiences, the core experiences of recovery are rooted 
in empowerment and reconnection. Mm. So how would it impact your practice, do you think, Nivenka, given that you read the book more recently than I have? I think, like, it really helped me to understand the, the stages of recovery um, because I guess um, with my patients, usually I try to be really present in the moment, but I didn't understand that there was this, um, you know, that there's these three stages of recovery. So I think it helps me to now think about, okay, like, uh, have we really built enough safety to do the remembering and mourning? Is it safe to do the remembering and mourning and to be more mindful of that? I think that's a big learning for me. But also to think about another thing, I, I always thought that as a clinician, you know, working on an individual level is not enough mm -hmm. because often, you know, when you are working just on an individual level, there's this su such sense of sometimes powerless. Um, in the stories that sometimes I feel like I soak up too. Um, and I think being um, being a part of broader um, sociopolitical movements is also about empowering myself mm -hmm. um, to kind of work towards systems change mm -hmm. to address those more upstream factors so that we actually can work towards preventing trauma rather than, you know, always kind of after trauma happen. Yeah. Um, so I think it like reading it almost like reaffirmed that something that I believed. And also like this sense of like generational solidarity, you know, Judy Thurman is so much older than I am. But this sense that in 1992, with all the knowledge that she had, she wrote this book that now younger generations of therapists can read and learn from. Like it kind of connects you to this continuum, you know, that you're not alone. I'm so affirmed by that, you mm. know. It, yes, it is a multi-generation. It's almost like sitting on ancestors or, you know, mm. on, on a body of knowledge. But when you said about, you know, it's important for me so that I don't feel powerless in the room, mm. I also think the other end of it, sometimes when we do good work, we think it's all because of just our individual contribution. Mm. When it's never that way, we are built on so many shoulders and such struggle and such, as you say, generosity of sharing and deepening knowledge practices and skills and, and also a kindness and humility that comes without having the arrogance of, oh, the client improved because of me. No, it's a whole range of sociocultural and political determinants, you know. And I think that's something else that I loved about this book because the way she writes, there's a sense of humility that you can sense that she's so experienced, she has so much knowledge, but she's offering up a perspective for people to think about rather than being dogmatic and saying, this is the way, you know. And it's such a nice book to read because of that, that sense of gentleness. Yeah, gentleness. Yeah. I, I I do want our listeners also to know that you and I even watched her. Yeah. And she is that gentle. And yeah. she, she has this beautiful way of taking the time. She pauses to, yeah. to reflect. And when we watched her conversations with history um, interview with 
um, at the Berkeley Institute. Mm. That was such a for me. It was it was yeah. It was a masterclass in yeah. gentleness. Yeah, yeah. But I also want to take it a bit deeper, Nevenka. You know, we have this three-staged model that we are talking about that Judith Herman says. My question is, what would recovery look for a society that has been traumatized, not an individual? Mm. So like traumatized individuals, traumatized communities and traumatized societies need to remember, Mm. grieve and heal. Mm. The responsibility to bear witness is a crucial step for healing. But in societies, if there is refusal to see trauma, if there is denial, if there is distancing, and if there is dissociation, what happens? As is often the case, the bystanders, you know, like whether it's us or the the society in general, if we choose to identify with the perpetrators, either by commission or by omission, it creates a deep betrayal of justice, doesn't it? Whether it's with the institutional abuse, war crimes, stolen generation, detention practices, domestic violence, child sexual assault. So my larger question, Navenka, is how would it be if we do remembering and mourning? How would it be if we remember the colonization history of Australia and mourn the brutality that occurred with indigenous people here, how would it be if we do acts of solidarity and witnessing through the Uluru Statement of the Heart, what would acts of reckoning mean for a nation like ours? What would happen, as Judith Herman said, if we connect psychological insights to political insights and then to political actions. What if? I think we have so much to gain from that because I think like going back to a personal level, Radhika, I think when I was growing up, I'm a migrant, but I went to high school here. I was literally taught that in history class, I was taught that Captain Cook shook hands with the indigenous elder and that's how, you know, they just handed over this land. And, you know, obviously that's not what happened, but that's what I was taught. This was like going back 10 years and I think it's changing now. But, you know, kids are being taught in public classrooms untruths, falsehoods. I think it sets people up because then they hold on to this narrative and become very defensive when that's challenged. So I think in terms of building this this society that, you know, is ready to go on this healing path, I think people need to have a more like curious mindset, always be ready to challenge themselves and change their mind and think about what they've been taught. So I think that's one to be curious and to be open. But I also think that kind of curious mindset, thinking that you have all the more to gain from that because if we live in an Australia where you know where we truly recognize that this is Aboriginal people's land and really make an effort to learn indigenous languages to you know make an effort to learn about local plants and their like herbal uses their healing properties then all of us would feel so much more grounded to the earth and that is um, certainly the remembering isn't yeah. it with history remembering but even the paragraph that you read of hers because everybody is reading the book with an individual or a client in yeah. mind if we read it with a country in mind 
it'll take a completely different perspective. Mm. So in in some ways, are, we, I, are you thinking, Nevenka, that academia and activism should go hand in hand? Yeah, I think so. Because I think it's almost like, even though it doesn't really happen that often, I think they sound like natural allies because one thing complements the other. You know, the things that you learn in an academic sphere can help you to be a better activist and vice versa. So I think so. What do you think, Radhika? <laughs> you know, this is such a such an interesting area, isn't it? Because mm. the training is all about you're not an activist. You're not going to be doing the marches. You're not going to do the campaign. You're a therapist. You know, you're a... Uh, you're an academic. You just you just read the data. You just do the stats, and I kind of think people of Judith's generation who came from political movements, whether it was anti-Vietnam um, protests or feminist movements, or or even the activists now from the LGBTIQ movement or the NDIS movement, where you know people said nothing for us without us kind of movements, psychology. And psychotherapy has been distanced from this kind of activism. I kind of sometimes think we have become so polite. Whereas somebody like Judith Thurman and her colleagues took on the entire field by saying something doesn't match here. This just doesn't agree with what the last hundred years of knowledge and the body of literature is speaking to. We have completely missed yeah. what is happening here kind yeah. of a thing. And I think maybe like when you, what you just said just reminded me of like, you know, working in a professional setting, you're often taught to be very objective and to almost like try to leave yourself aside and just do your job to leave the personal aside. And I think maybe that's the problem because when you leave the personal aside, you also like, you know, you almost leave that sense of advocacy, that sense of personal fire behind. And I think that's a huge loss. Mm, that's a nice word, personal fire. Because it's also around, we bring so much passion and ideology to our work, but slowly we all just become, everybody becomes a psychologist. The same. And the, the radical same. goes away. Yeah. <laughs> we, we are all trying size. to be like the same when we all need to be different. <laughs> one size fits yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things maybe we have to think about is how do we do as a collective, in the field I mean, as practitioners, how do we do solidarity? How do we do acts of witnessing? How do we do acts of remembering? And more importantly, how do we grieve for our historical wrongs in order to heal, not to kind of, you know, it's not to whip ourselves, uh, not as a, an act of flagellation, but as an act of liberation. How do we do this? Yeah. And those were the, those were those ethical core questions for me from that continues to to both haunt and um, enrich me from Judith's book. I think I could love to continue talking about <laughs> this with you the whole time, but it's been such a great conversation. For me, I have to say, listening to you, two things that I listened immediately like, touched my heart. One was this thing that you talked about, personal fire, because I kind of think in the last 32 years, 
I have heard so much about this concept of neutrality. Like, you know, we are all neutral, you know, we la la la. When none of us are neutral, mm. inside of us, nobody is neutral. Mm. So we have to find a way to embrace our positionings, moral positionings, but at the same time, not to be consumed by it so that we don't collaborate and we are not able to reach out or open our hearts and our hands for holding and, and cooperation. So that personal fire uh, stood out for me. The other thing is you mentioned around your own migrant growing up and history lessons and those two things I'm going to think more deeply. So what was a penny-dropping moment for you? I think, Radhika, when at the very start, I think you mentioned this, like, zooming in and zooming out. I guess, like, I didn't really think about it that way, but it really helps me conceptualize it, you know, because I think it is, like, I think looking at an individual level, but also at a collective level and being able to do those things all at the same time to hold those points of view kind of simultaneously in your mind is really important and that's something that yeah I'm gonna think more about and I guess I want to really thank you as well you know um, like I said I am very thankful for you not just you know for this podcast but for mentoring me for like giving me all these book recommendations and as you said you know your supervisor handed down this book for you and in the same way you have handed down this book for me so someday maybe I can do the same for someone younger isn't it? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, you know, um, I'm not sure who it is. Um, probably it's Robert McFarlane who said, what kind of an ancestor are we going to be? Mm. And that, that is a question that's important for me. What kind of an ancestor mm. am I going to be? So it's not just about today. It's mm. not just about tomorrow. Mm. It's about, you know, 50 years and 100 years to come. Mm. What kind of an ancestor will I be? So I think we'll have to bid farewell to our listeners, Nivenka. Thank you all for joining us on this episode of MHP and Presence Book Club. You've been listening to me, Radhika. And me, Nivanka. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation about the book Trauma and Recovery by Judith Lewis Herman. As much as we have, if you want to learn more about myself or Nivanka, our bios can be found on the landing page of this episode, where you'll also find the link to the book we have discussed and MHPN's feedback survey. MHPN values your feedback. Please follow the link and let us know whether you found this episode helpful. Provide comments or suggestions to help shape the future of MHPN podcasts. To stay up to date with future book club episodes and other MHPN podcasts, don't forget to subscribe to MHPN Presents. Thank you for your commitment and engagement with interdisciplinary person-centered mental health care. It's goodbye from me. And me. Visit mhpn.org.au to find out more about our online professional program, including podcasts, webinars, as well as our face-to-face -face interdisciplinary mental health networks across Australia. 